Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You're listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to get a chance to chat again with Kimberly Wagner. She's the author of a book called Fierce Women, The Power of a Soft Warrior. Talk about a great title. Maybe you, uh, did you ever get the idea that, that being a godly wife means that you're supposed to be some kind of doormat? I don't think so. So uh, Kimberly's got some wonderful wisdom and she is a uh, nice enough to uh, join the program once again. Kimberly, welcome back. Oh, thank you, Bill. Good to be with you today. Yeah. You know, I, I first want to start with uh, uh, your husband, Leroy. He co-authored a book called Men Who Love Fierce Women. So he, he wrote that. Uh, he knew what he was talking about. And I just want to ask about his uh, the status of how he's doing. I know he's got some health issues, and maybe you could talk about what it's like for you to be going through that. Well, uh, since you brought up the book that he wrote for husbands, he actually mentions in that book, just to give a hint of the early days of that, it was in 2015 when um, we were working on writing that book together, and he started having just really weird, strange symptoms. We, he called it at first just his yuckiness. And I could even tell that that yuckiness was coming on because his face would become very flushed Mm -hmm. and he just felt awful. And that went on. We started going through a lot of doctor visits and tests for two years. And he writes a little bit about that in the book since that was happening in the early stages when we were writing the book to husbands. And, um, we really couldn't ever get an answer of what was going on. Everything looked good. And then when we were together in Prince Edward Island, where I was speaking at a conference, he fell in the hotel lobby and could not get up. Oh, and boy. he was literally paralyzed from the waist down, except for his right leg. And we, through just gracious friends and people helping us, were able to get off the island and get to a hospital in Dallas uh, that our, our, his primary care doctor recommended. And, he, and Leroy was there for almost three weeks going through all kinds of tests and treatment where he had seven plasma exchange treatments. Boy. They they finally determined that he had a rare, rare neurological disease that had put lesions. His body was attacking itself, and there were lesions all up and down his spinal cord that caused the partial paralysis. We were just so grateful and thankful it didn't cause paralysis to both legs. And so then from that was in 2017. And for the past three years, uh, he's gone through a couple of years of treatment and 
periods of time where we felt like maybe the disease was um, dormant mm-hmm. and we were hopeful that it would not reappear. Throughout that time, though, because of the nerve damage to that leg, he is in constant pain. And people from around the globe have prayed for his healing, have prayed for relief from the pain. I'm so thankful for all of my blog readers that faithfully pray and have have sent just precious words of encouragement. But the pain does not let up. And, And I want Bill to mention here, I think some people are under the impression that he's using a lot of pain medication to try and dull the pain. And in the beginning, the physicians, they put him on all kinds of heavy drugs, strong medication to try and dull that pain. And what it was doing was just kind of knocking him out, but he still felt the pain. Oh, and, and after a year of that, he said, you know what? I want to wean off of all of this stuff because I don't want to just be a a, a vegetable or be just completely knocked out while the family's around. I, I want to be able to function. And if I'm going to have pain with pain medication, I might as well have the pain without the pain medication. Mm-hmm. So he's not actually on any pain medication, which is incredible to the doctors because they know from looking at his MRIs, even the most recent MRI that he had shows scarring on his spinal cord but he is um and this is where i hope i don't tear up on you but i usually do when i talk about him because he is the most faithful man of god he has never changed in his position and demeanor toward god and his uh gratitude for the good gifts god's given his praise and worship of God each morning. Our mornings begin with him, what I call washing me in the water of the word. As he he reads through our daily reading together, we pray together, and it is a sweet, sweet worship time. Even though he is in physical pain constantly, constantly, that doesn't ever let up. Now, there are some days that that pain is at a higher level than others. That pain and the nerve damage triggers horrific muscle spasms that is painful to watch him endure. Um, But his heart and his devotion to Christ has never wavered. And and I want people to understand that because um, it is... He's my inspiration. It is possible to walk through horrific circumstances and maintain that heart of worship and love for God by God's grace. It is God who puts that within you. And as, But as you respond to the grace God gives, he gives out more grace and more grace. And I've seen him do that over and over. Mm. And just to update you on what's been going on the last few weeks with his health is those same old original symptoms that showed up in 2015 that we have not seen in the last three years have started showing up again. He's even had a large um, area on his good leg that looks like what they call a sarcoid 
eruption or event show up. And so this week, uh, that was biopsied just a few days ago. And uh, like I shared with you before we came on air, the pathologist may call me during this radio interview, and I will step away to take that call if he does. But we're waiting to see if the disease is um, ramping up again in his mm. body. So I'm well, grateful, yeah. very grateful for anyone who prays for him. Yes, we love we love Leroy. And listeners, uh, you have been asked to pray for Leroy as he is uh, needing prayer. So, Kimberly, thank you for that uh, update. And how 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 has this uh, changed your heart, or how how have you pleaded to God during? this time because it seems like we always get a little bit more desperate in our prayer which is never a bad thing um but how was your your prayer life and how has god worked in you in you through this the last several months wow oh that's a lot bill i don't think i can pack that in here but i will try yeah but just make Um, something up it doesn't matter (laughs) (laughs) well as far as you know um God definitely is using this to uh, work on my heart and on me in ways that need to be worked on. And Mm -hmm. in my book, Fierce Women, I was very transparent about how God dealt with me through those years in my uh, really hardness of heart that I didn't even realize I had, um, my selfishness and willfulness. But no matter how much God graciously works on us to sanctify us. There's all still, there's always still more to do. And um, God has really through this uh, early on, um, early on, one of the things he dealt with my heart about was um, coveting that when I would uh, see a couple together walking and just holding hands, that's something that Leroy and I weren't able to do because he he couldn't walk, for one thing, without using these crutches that, that would, well, wrap around his arms and, and dragging one leg and pulling it along as he used these arm braces and crutch mm, walking I'm sticks so is what we called them. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't walk together and hold hands, and something that simple um, – Looking at that couple, I would long for that again, Mm -hmm. to have that again. And God very early dealt with my heart about don't don't walk in that sin of coveting. It will lead to bitterness. And so I had to quickly learn to, when I would see something like that, or when a friend, a couple would go on a... um, anniversary trip to Hawaii or whatever, I I had to learn to rejoice with those who are rejoicing mm-hmm. and not covet for that because mm-hmm. coveting is when we long for something that is not ours. And that's not what God has given us for this season. We've had many, many good years of traveling across the globe together, of walking hand in hand, of having hikes. And I look back to those times, and rather than being bitter that we don't have them now, I turn my heart to thankfulness that we had that. Some couples never have that, and we did have that at one Mm -hmm. time. We may not have it in this season of life, but on the new earth we will. Amen. We'll be able to do 
those things again. Yeah, amen. Kimberly, let me take a little break. Uh, Kimberly Wagner is my guest. Her book is called Fierce Women, The Power of a Soft Warrior. When we come back, uh, Kimberly, I'd love to ask you if you can give me a profile of what a fierce woman looks like. All right, we'll be uh, right back after a short break. my guest. She's written an amazing book called Fierce Women, The Power of a Soft Warrior. And Kimberly, I would love for you to just give us a profile of what a fierce woman looks like. (laughs) Well, it depends on whether you're talking about a fierce woman who is um, living for herself Hmm. and uh, self-willed and arrogant and pushy, or if you're talking about a fierce woman who is under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's and the one I'd be interested in hearing about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you for giving uh, me that options. Woman, okay. That woman is strong. She's not a, a doormat, um, but her strength does not come from herself. Her, her identity is rooted in her relationship with Christ. That's... That's the most important thing. You know, A.W. Tozer told us the most important thing about a person is their view of God. And a beautiful, fierce woman, she learns who God is, gets to know him personally, intimately. And through that, she has a greater understanding of her identity rather than, you know, today it seems like it's a popular thing to... uh, find yourself. I hear people talking about that. Find your true self. Well, really the way we understand who we truly are created to be, who we truly are, is getting to know our Creator, our Heavenly Father, our Savior. If we know Christ, if we are in Christ, get to know Him. And as we get to know Him, He reveals to us who He created us to be. So, That's the beginning point. Mm -hmm. And then out of that flows the fruit of the Spirit, that um, she walks in love, displays love and joy. She um, is, her, her heart is kept in perfect peace because her heart and mind are stayed on Christ. That doesn't mean that I walk around all of the time like a zombie and just quoting scripture verses, and I never wash my laundry, you know, (laughs) it means that everything that I do, though, flows from that uh, abiding in Christ, like John 15 talks about that vine, just, just that continual fellowship with the Spirit. And then, so the fruit of the Spirit is coming out, that patience, that kindness and goodness and Mm -hmm. gentleness. All of those things are flowing out of that relationship with Christ. And then she's not timid when it calls, when when there is something that, um, a truth that needs to be spoken, maybe a hard truth even, she courageously speaks up. And she speaks in a way, though, that is um, consistent with Scripture, um, is love being poured out through 
true words that are spoken, like Ephesians 4.29 tells us to do. Um, The beautiful, fierce woman loves God passionately, and from that love for him, loves others well. Mm -hmm. You also say in your book that this fierce woman is filled with gratitude for God's good gifts, and her heart is ruled by the peace of contentment. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And also uh, that others feel comfortable in seeking her counsel. She embraces mm-hmm. God's word as her ultimate authority rather than being swayed by the voices of the culture. These are all great characteristics of a fierce woman. Is this something you grew into, Kimberly, or is this kind of always who you've been? <laughs> <laughs> no. I wasn't in, in supposed to get book, a laugh, but it did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In my book, there's that contrast that I give, and I tell people the the destructive fierce woman was my personal bio before God <laughs> opened my eyes and started dealing with my heart. Um, you know, I do want to say something to Christian women who are listening right now, who are, you know, they're faithful in their Bible study. They get into the Word every day. I did that. I was a pastor's wife. I taught on hard truths like biblical submission. Oh, who talks about that today? That's a horrible thought. And so I I would teach on these things, and yet um, I wasn't doing what Isaiah 66 talks about. That very last chapter of Isaiah, God gives us a hint of how we're to pr- approach him when he tells us that he is looking for those hearts who tremble at his word. So it's a very, very scary thing to be studying the Word of God without coming before His Word in humility and contrition and saying, Oh God, where do you find me today? Mm-hmm. Transform me, change me. And it wasn't, you know, in the early years of our marriage, yeah, I was reading my Bible every day. But I was reading it, studying it to teach others. I wasn't coming before God's word in humility and brokenness and asking him, open my eyes to what I need to see, where I need to change, what I need to surrender and yield to. So, Kimberly, when young couples enter marriage, do you think most of them do that with unrealistic expectations? Absolutely unrealistic expectations. And I I think that, sadly, it is um, perhaps getting we're getting worse at that as far as couples that are being married today, because um, in general, uh, things tend to be pretty easy. Now, this year, it hasn't been an easy year for anyone, really, Mm -hmm. but um, couples tend to think it's just going to be like a long extended date and we're going to have fun and it's <laughs> and you know people naturally are selfish and when you bring two selfish individuals together and they're expecting each other to you know the other person to make them feel great and wonderful all the time you're going to have a lot of unmet unrealistic expectations mhm talk about the root of self pity Where's that come from? Oh, oh, man. Yeah, that was really 
a stronghold in my life for many, many years. And that, yeah, it comes from being so concerned about myself that I'm easily offended or get my feelings hurt. I read things into what people are saying to me and and have that chip on my shoulder. That kind of thing is so um, destructive in a marriage, in any relationship. And it was in, I remember exactly where I was in 1984, I believe it was, when God used Hebrews chapter 12, the first four verses there. Um, And I say, really, that is the key to overcoming self-pity, those verses, Mm -hmm. where it presents the picture of Christ, you know, to consider him who went to the cross, he endured the cross for us. And then in verse 3 and 4, it says, consider him. He endured all of this hostility against himself. And yet we, we haven't even shed any blood in our own struggle against sin. Mm -hmm. And when I begin to contrast what Christ went through for me on the cross and how, how little and piddly and petty the things were that I was getting offended over or getting my feelings hurt over, uh, then I realized, oh, my, when I get my feelings hurt, if I will just shift my focus and my attention and my eyes back to Christ, his love poured out for me on the cross, undeserving as I was, what he endured for me and The blood he shed, but not just that, the spiritual component to what he suffered, then, oh my, I'm able to step out of that pity party and step into a worship event. Mm -hmm. And that makes all the difference in the world. And I am so thankful that years ago, he began breaking me out of that cycle of having pity parties. And it is possible to live without giving in to a self-pity party. Mm-hmm. We're down to one minute, Kimberly, so I'm going to have to make this quick. Uh, a great line from your book is, often the desire to control stems from a woman's deep longing for affection. That's a, that's a powerful mm-hmm. thought. I'm, I'm going to have uh, our, my listeners kind of chew on that one for a while. And unfortunately, uh, we're out of time. I'd just love to have you back and continue this conversation because this is so good. Mm, I'd be glad to come back anytime that I am able. All right. I've Thank got you. that. On, I've got that on tape, so I'm going to hold you to that. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, All uh, right. My best to you, and we'll be praying for Leroy. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Thank you. Yep, Kimberly Wagner's been my guest. Her book is called "Fierce Women: The Soft, The Power of a Soft Warrior." We'll take a short break, and we will be right back.
Welcome back to the show. So glad to always get a chance to talk to Dr. Rebecca Ree, one of my favorite Hebrew scholars, and uh, she is a great storyteller and a writer, a blogger, and I'm always glad to have her on the program. You can reach her at RebeccaRee.net. That's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-R-H-E-E.net. Rebecca, welcome. Well, thanks for having me once again. Yeah, it's so nice to have you on the show. I understand that recently you uh, you suffered a minor injury putting on deodorant. <laughs> I certainly did. And um, <laughs> But I'm, I really want to back up a minute and um, begin today's story by asking a question. Um, and I'll ask it specifically to you. Okay. Um, what is one of the first emotions ever displayed by a person in the Bible? Um, that's a good question. Let me think. Um, first emotion, um, I don't know. What is it? Um, surprise. <laughs> and I'm not going to follow that with another answer. Surprise is the answer. Okay. Surprise. <laughs> uh, surprise. Okay. So, um, in Genesis, God forms Eve out of the rib of Adam and presents her to him. And he is so surprised at how different she is and how superior to all the other animal he's been naming that he breaks out into a song, right? Oh, He's like, at last, yeah. bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And you can almost imagine Adam doing like a little happy dance as he says these things, right? Uh-huh. And the fact that we see surprise at the very opening of the Bible says to me that being surprised um, is an integral part of our human experience. I like but whether that. We, but whether we experience surprise as something positive or negative totally depends on the circumstances confronting us. Now that we live in a fallen world that's quite different from the Eden that Adam was living in. So um, I would say that it's more the negative surprises today that we need help with. The yeah. troubles that, that are blindsiding us out of nowhere. And I would say especially um, during this pandemic when we feel like totally ambushed and overtaken by a crisis that we can't easily overcome and see our way out of. So I want to share a little bit of what God's been showing me about difficult surprises because I think it's kind of a timely uh, message of encouragement. I also like so, the, I also like the word ambush, Rebecca, because I, <laughs> I think that's very apropos for what a lot of people are feeling right now. Right, absolutely, ambush or uh, waylaid is another yeah, one. Yeah, I like that one too. Um, so um, the other day I was taking a shower, like you had alluded to, and I blindly reach out for my deodorant stick. And I was going to apply it, and instead of gliding under my on top of my skin, it scraped me. And that's kind of a tender area under your <laughs> under your arm there. Yes, it is. And so I looked at I looked at it, and I realized it was a brand new deodorant stick. And they I had the it comes its packaging came with like a protective cap, and it was this piece of plastic with this kind of a, a, a little protrusion on it, so it was kind of sharp. Yeah. And I simply hadn't seen it there and hadn't removed it before sticking it in the shower <laughs> with me. And so, you know, I took it off and I quickly threw it away. But something told me to file away this little surprise of pain to, to reflect on later on. So I did. I just said, OK, I was surprised by pain and I'm just going to file that away. So fast forward a few a few days later and, and once a week, um, my husband and I like to take a date night. We like to have a date night where we go out um, on Sunday evenings and we have dinner, although that's getting trickier and trickier. And um, we talk and we share and we usually end our time by um, sharing some prayer needs that we might have and pray, praying for one another. And 
it's funny because we'll, we'll, you know, park our car at like an ice cream shop or at a train station. And I wonder what people think we're doing. They see us sitting there with our hands clasped and our lips are moving and our eyes are closed. <laughs> what are these people doing? Mm-hmm. Um, but this is what we do. And so it was my turn to do my sharing. And um, I found some pretty heavy questions suddenly pouring out of my mouth to my husband. And they went kind of like this. They, I, was, I was asking, you know, why don't I have a job that uses my strength as a writer? Or why don't I have a job that uses my PhD in biblical literature right now? And why instead have I been given, you know, a monumental task? for which I hardly feel prepared, which is raising our eight-year-old autistic son. And, um, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. I love, I love our son, and I understand that raising him is both an honor and a privilege in the kingdom of God, um, and that I've been chosen for a blessing and not for a curse in raising him. But it's also a grueling marathon to raise an autistic child, and it can be a very isolating experience. Um, And some days I really long for more channels of creative and intellectual outlet. You know, sometimes I I wish I were like a real official writer and not just an aspiring writer. Mm -hmm. And when I do the deadly thing of comparing myself to my friends who've been in their, you know, various vocations for years and years, They have official job titles and paychecks and pensions. It's really hard for me not to feel like a total loser um, when I look at it that way. So I thought, you know, this this takes some, um, this deserves some some attention here. So I went home and I did some journaling, and all these thoughts boiled down to a single question, and that question was this: God, why have you rejected me? And all of a sudden, it was like, whoa, full stop. That particular question really surprised me, and let me explain why. It wasn't because I had never felt rejected by God. I have struggled for years with feeling rejected and even hated by God, and that ties back to the abusive relationship I had with my father, who in previous writings I've explained was mentally ill and very religiously fanatic um, in his expression of Christianity. And he was frequently and violently enraged with me for one reason or another all the time. And he was always looking to find fault or condemn me for some, you know, perceived sin on my part. So with an earthly father like that, um, you can imagine how my image of a heavenly father started to take shape inside of my soul, no matter what I read in the Bible or heard preached from the pulpit. So... Worst yet, when my father decided to go into full-time ministry, the lines between earthly and heavenly fathers started to blur even further because the things that he did when he was hurting me, he was explicitly doing in the name of God. So that does something to a person mm. um, just over time, and especially a very young person um, whose whose mind and whose soul are very malleable at that person at that time. So yeah, I would say by the time I left for college. I was pretty sure that uh, God was out to get me and that he wanted to bless all of his other beloved children, but he rejected me as his child. So um, thankfully enough, it was at college um, that I first heard about how our earthly fathers really inform how we see our heavenly father. And so 
it was there that be, began a decade-long journey of trying to separate out those two people in my life, my earthly father and my heavenly father. And I kind of um, likened that process to, you ever seen like documentaries about separating conjoined twins? Maybe they're conjoined at the head or they've got some uh, conjoined and they share organs. And it's a really arduous, intricate, long and risky procedure, you know, but, you know, if they can get it done, they do because they really want each child to be able to thrive. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like that. It was kind of like that kind of surgery. It went on for a very long time. It was very intricate and it was kind of risky in terms of my emotions were on the line and my picture of God was on the line and my understanding of myself was on the line and my emotional well-being. So that was going on and on. So when I was suddenly recently, you know, scraped, by this question, God, why have you rejected me? You know, when that came up again, I was surprised that after so much therapy, so many years of pastoral counseling and prayer ministry, I was still struggling with the same old issue, that I was still vulnerable to that old pain. And uh, that was extremely demoralizing for me. And so I looked to the scriptures and I found a story, you know, for me, when I'm when I'm discouraged, it's often the narratives, the stories that speak most powerfully to me. And I found one in Second Kings that really spoke to my despair over being blindsided by this, this rejection uh, pain again. So um, I want to share that with you again, that story with you. And at first glance, um, the heroine of this story, she doesn't seem to be anyone who has obvious vulnerabilities. She's quite the opposite. She's a person of privilege. She's married. She's wealthy. She's hospitable. She's proactive. And we know all these things because of how she treats the prophet Elisha, who is passing uh, her way frequently. So she's known only, she isn't given a name in the story, but she's known only by the location of her home, which is Shunem. So she's called the Shunemite. And she has... um, an upper room built for Elisha on her rooftop so that the holy man of God, which is what she calls him, can rest there whenever he needs to. So it's a nice little upper uh, upper room for him. And so wanting to repay her kindness, um, Elisha, you know, does a little research and found, finds out that although she lacks for nothing, she has no male child and heir to support her when her elderly husband dies. So he calls her over and he declares to her, I'm sure in that booming prophetic voice, that within a year she's going to conceive a son. And I find it rather interesting that rather than collapsing in a heap, she just stands her ground and she says, no, my Lord, oh, man of God, do not lie to your servant. And it's almost like if I had to put it in present day English, it's almost like she's saying, don't play with me. Hmm. I have lived too long with this pain to entertain any false hopes about it. You know, so it just shows she's got grit and she's, she's real. You know, she knows what she's made of and she knows uh, where she's been emotionally and she's not about to just give in to any little fantasy. Um, But sure enough, by the next year, Elisha's words proved true and the Shunammite has a son. And we know that he, we, we're not given an exact age, but we know he grows old enough to go in search of his father in the fields during harvest time. So I imagine he's at least elementary school age. And it, in this context of plenty, so you imagine the fields ripe with harvest and the, 
field workers are there and the father is overseeing the process. And the boy comes out and suddenly he starts screaming that he has head pain. And the father sends the boy, by, I'm assuming by servants, to his mother who's at the house. And he lays on her lap and dies. Wow. Um, and the son and heir that the Shunammite thought she would never have never makes it to adulthood. Oh, Rebecca, I think uh, it's a powerful story. We'll pick up after the break. Um, sure. We'll be taking a short break. Be right back with Dr. Rebecca Ree. You can head over to RebeccaRee.net to learn more about her. We'll be right back. back to the show. So glad to have Rebecca Ree as my guest. Um, Rebecca, you're um, telling a powerful story from Second Kings. And so right before we went to break, I'm reminded of this story where the boy complains of head pain. His father um, sent him home to his mother and the child promptly dies. Yikes. Yeah. yeah. So it's like an obscenely cruel joke. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's not one that this woman, but this particular woman is going to take lying down. So she puts her boy's body on Elisha's bed and goes in search of the prophet. And when she gets to him, she says, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not lie to me? In other words, she's saying, why give me a miracle if you were only going to rip it out from under me? Mm. I built you a room and you built for, you built me a prison of pain that I will never, ever escape. I hold you personally responsible. And to Elijah's, Elisha's credit, I mean, he immediately takes action. He sends his servant ahead with his staff, and this is a miracle working staff. And he says, lay it on the child's face. Maybe he'll revive, but that doesn't work. So then Elisha comes himself to the child, and then he, he, um, he does something rather strange, and I'm going to go ahead and read the passage directly to you. Um, when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed, so he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Now, before I was talking about how my dad modeled God to me, and if we accept that in this passage, Elisha, who bears the title man of God, is modeling God here, we learn three things that can help a person who's been waylaid by pain, and especially long-term pain. Um, and first is, Elisha's actions speak of extreme identification with the victim. And it's not enough for him to pray for the dead boy, mighty as, you know, I can't even imagine how mighty those prayers might have been um, coming from Elisha. Uh, and what he does is he makes intimate physical contact with the boy's mouth, eyes, and hands by placing these same parts of his own body on top of those parts of the boy's body. 
And as he stretches himself out, I was trying to visualize this. I saw that Elisha may have been assuming kind of like a cruciform position on top of the corpse if the boy's arms were kind of stretched a little out from his body. And so if he was, he's kind of foreshadowing another man of God who would also stretch himself out and say, if you die, I die, so that you in the end may live. So an extreme identification. Mm with the victim. So, and then the second thing that Elisha's miracle of resurrecting the boy is that it requires a lot of perseverance on Elisha's part. There are so many points at which Elisha could have stopped the process. You know, when the staff didn't work, he could have stopped. When the initial prostration of his body on the child's body didn't work. And even when the child's body begins to grow warm, Elisha doesn't stop until the boy sneezes, and I love that little detail, it's just such a human detail, and opens his eyes, and we have evidence that, you know, consciousness and life has returned. Um, And uh, we later learn in the story, and this is the third thing, that Elisha doesn't even consider his work done till he calls the Shunammite to the rooftop room and says, pick up your son. And it's if he's saying, pick up your faith. Mm. God really does care. The God whom I represent really does care. So if we consider these three points together, God identifies with me in my unexpected pain, God perseveres with me in my unexpected pain, and God gives back to me what I have lost. They all kind of boil down to one thing, which is something that the Shunammite you know, underscores herself, which is this, that she insists that Elisha take responsibility for the child he prophetically speaks into the world. And I I just think that bears saying again, she really insists that Elisha take responsibility it's interesting because Elisha is contrasted with the old father. The father, when he, when the boy has a problem, doesn't do anything about the boy himself. He sends the boy home to the mother. And the, the mother doesn't even let the, the father know that there's a problem. She goes straight to Elisha. She knows. She insists wow. that Elisha take herself. So the father and Elisha are kind of um, counterparts for each other in the story. It's really Elisha's the one that's responsible, even though the biological father is there. And... That makes me wonder, you know, so Elisha brought the boy into the world prophetically by his word. And that makes me wonder whether the creator who spoke all life into being by the word, let there be, feels deeply and especially responsible for you and me when pain takes us by surprise. Mm -hmm. But there's a correlation there, you know. And the question is not so much whether he will do his part to help us, but whether we have the gut to open our eyes, I mean, really open our eyes to see whether there are eyes staring back at us, whether there's a mouth speaking into us, and whether there's hands grasping our hands. And if not, are we going to press press on and press in until we get that miracle that we did? You know, and sort of scrolling back to the earlier part of the, you know, what I was describing, you know, my rejection with my dad, for me, that would be like, uh, laying the pain of my father on 
you know, the bed I've made inside of myself for God, the space that I've made where he rests inside of me, laying that pain and say, you know, God, with all due respect, what are you going to do about this? I didn't ask for this father. I didn't, you know, I didn't create this situation. You know, you've allowed this father into my life and I'm still suffering this pain. What are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's, you know, being able to, to take uh, that to God, to go to that quiet up, that little private upper room and bring in those things once again. Um, Because, you know, the thing that I realized again with the deodorant cap, you know, as funny as that, that little thing was, was this side of Eden, unexpected pain, whether it's new pain or old pain that we thought we were through with, it's just part of life's packaging. We're never going to get around that, this side of Eden, you know? You know, Rebecca, when I study and look at that, read that passage in Kings, I, I've always been a little troubled as to what to do with it. And you've done really a lovely job of uh, drawing such a, a personal illustration of our eyes looking back at you? Is there a mouth speaking into us? Are there hands that are grasping us? That's a, a very intimate look at that, that, that all of a sudden makes uh, a lot more sense to me. Yes. Well, it, it just shows us that, that God's initiative is to take that um, extreme identification with us. It's, it's always his first step to, to step into that identification with us and our pain. Mm-hmm. And again, a reminder to all of us that we are going to be uh, surprised often, daily, weekly, monthly, who knows how often. Mm-hmm. And there's going to mm-hmm. be pains that surface that we didn't anticipate, we couldn't see coming. And that's why we use the word surprise. And that's why uh, you have identified that that was the first emotion in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's very easy to anticipate and to say, Lord, I know there will be surprises starting as early as the next in the next hour. And thank goodness you are going to be walking through every one of these surprises with me. Otherwise, it would be uh, too difficult, too torturous to walk through life any other way. That's right. I mean, even this, the, the Gospels remind us that Jesus could be surprised when he met the Roman centurion, who is a man of faith, and said, oh, no, you don't have to come to my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus was surprised at that. <laughs> it's like, wow, I haven't seen a faith like this in all of Israel. So, yeah. yeah, I love that he was... It's, it's an essential part of being human. Yeah, I love that that was his response, that he was instantly ready to go to the centurion's house, and the centurion said, no, um, just give the orders. I love that. That's uh-huh. a, a great illustration. So uh-huh. as we are thinking of the the trauma that maybe all of us have had in some way, shape, or form in our lives, um, how do we continue to take that to God and to lament it well and to pray through it and to try to minimize the amount of uh, emotional capital that we give to it? Well, I think two things. First of all, um, we do. you have to do your version of date night. There has to be a real live person that you're sharing with, a person or a person, somebody safe, somebody whose relationship with God you trust, because um, it's very, very dangerous to hold painful surprises inside. Uh, you, you really can't, and you're not meant to. We're not, we're not built like that. And so we definitely need to, just like uh, Jesus uh, invited his disciples with him to the Garden of Gethsemane, we need to bring people to our Gethsemane. 
Uh, and that was something that was a point made by Pete Grigg in, in uh, some of his material that I recently went on, went, uh, learned about. And the other thing is, um, I think that we need to take some time with others, but also go to that upper room by ourselves. I did some journaling, and that's what brought all my, my thoughts and, you know, my, that whirl of thoughts in my head down to that single question, God, why have you rejected me? And that brought it into very clear focus. So we really need to spend some time with our thoughts to let that clarity come, as painful as it might be. But it will it's the thing that's going to advance us forward. Mm-hmm. That's such good wisdom, Rebecca. You know, I always always appreciate the way you can take little observational things in life and and draw such compelling illustrations because, you know, once you attach an image to a piece of scripture, it's hard to separate those two. And it's, uh, I think in psychology, they call it pairing. Um, (laughs) it's 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 a great way to remember passages of scripture. I think of uh, every time I take off one of those little plastic caps off deodorant, uh, I will be reminded of this passage in Kings and how God will, will meet me eye-to-eye, uh, eye, mouth-to-mouth, hand-to-hand. It's a pretty pretty great, powerful illustration. Thank you for that. Well, they are gifts to me as well, so I am thankful for them as well. But you noticed them, Rebecca. <laughs> well, it's kind of hard not to that time. <laughs> oh, I get it. I, I get it. I mean, I've probably done that um, myself when— I was taking it up to my armpit going, oh, wait, 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 i got to take this thing off first. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for uh, spending time with me today, and I hope you uh, have a wonderful rest of the day and a great week. All right. Thank you so much, Bill. You bet. Dr. Rebecca Ree has been my guest. You can go to her website, which is RebeccaRee.net. She spells her last name R-H-E-E, RebeccaRee.net. Have a great night, and God bless. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.